This is the JPGN podcast for April 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access the complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article is entitled Management of Chronic Hepatitis B in Children by Shaw et al. Hepatitis B virus infection is a worldwide problem and can cause acute liver failure, acute hepatitis, chronic hepatitis, liver cirrhosis, and liver cancer. In areas of high prevalence, such as in Asia, Africa, Southern Europe, and Latin America, the hepatitis B surface antigen positive rate ranges from 2 to 20%. In endemic areas, HBV infection occurs mainly during infancy and early childhood. Mother-to-infant transmission accounts for approximately half of the chronic hepatitis B virus infections. In contrast to infections in adults, HBV infection during early childhood results in a much higher rate of persistent infection and long-term serious complications such as liver cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. Three phases of chronic hepatitis B have been identified, the immune-tolerant phase, the immune-active phase, and the inactive hepatitis B phase. These phases of infection are characterized by variations in viral replication, hepatic inflammation, spontaneous clearance, and response to antiviral therapy. The optimal goal of antiviral therapy for chronic hepatitis B virus infection is to eradicate HBV and to prevent its related liver complications. However, due to the very limited effect of currently available therapies in viral eradication, the goal of treatment is to reduce viral replication, to minimize liver injury, and to reduce infectivity. In this review, the current recommendations for monitoring and treating chronic hepatitis B virus infection in children were reviewed. Our next article is entitled, Matrix Metalloproteinases in the Urine and Tissue of Patients with Juvenile Polyps, Potential Biomarkers for the Presence of Polyps, by Manfredi et al. Juvenile polyps are the most common type of pediatric gastrointestinal polyp. They're highly vascularized and have a markedly increased mucosal microcirculation. Matrix metalloproteinases, or MMPs, are a family of enzymes that play an essential role in the degradation of the extracellular matrix in normal development, tumor invasion and metastasis, and angiogenesis. The authors hypothesized that urinary MMPs may serve as clinical biomarkers for juvenile polyps. In this preliminary study, the authors obtained 32 urine samples from 16 subjects with known or suspected juvenile polyps who presented to the endoscopy unit for colonoscopy. They also obtained urine from 16 age and sex matched controls. Urinary MMPs were analyzed by zymography and their localized tissue expression was assessed by immunohistochemistry. Urinary MMPs were detected in a significantly higher frequency in those with juvenile polyps than control subjects. In addition, high levels of MMPs were localized in the epithelium and lamina propria of polyp tissue compared to colonic tissue from controls. As a result, the authors feel that MMPs may potentially serve as surrogate markers for the presence of polyps. 
Our next article is entitled Carbon-13 Breath Tests for Sucrose Digestion in Congenital Sucrase Isomaltase Deficient and Sucrositase Supplemented Patients by Robayo Torres et al. Congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, or CSID, is characterized by absence or deficiency of the sucrase isomaltase enzyme in the intestinal mucosa. Diagnosis requires an upper gastrointestinal biopsy with evidence of low to absent sucrase enzyme activity and normal histology. The hydrogen breath test is useful, but it's not specific for this diagnosis. The authors investigated a more specific carbon-13 sucrose-labeled breath test. 10 CSID patients were diagnosed with low sucrase activity by biopsy and were compared to 10 control patients. Uniformly labeled carbon-13 glucose and carbon-13 sucrose loads were given by mouth. Labeled CO2 breath levels were determined using a spectrophotometer. In CSID patients, the carbon-13 sucrose load was repeated after ingestion of sucrate. Classification of patients by carbon-13 sucrose breath test was consistent with the biopsy sucrase activity. Also, the breath test documented the normal return of sucrose digestion and oxidation in CSID patients after taking sucrate. In summary, carbon-13 sucrose breath testing is an accurate and specific non-invasive confirmatory test for CSID and for enzyme replacement management. Our next article is entitled Follow-Up and Surgical Management of Putz-Jaeger Syndrome in Children by Isabella Vidal et al. Putz-Jaeger Syndrome is an autosomal dominant syndrome with an increased risk of polyposis complications as well as intestinal and extraintestinal tumors. This study looked at 11 children with this syndrome with special attention to evolution and follow-up. Among the 10 children presenting with GI complications, eight were operated on, six had at least one small bowel resection, and four had redo surgery for recurrent intussusceptions. From this data, one can conclude that children with Peutz-Jaeger syndrome have a high risk of numerous laparotomies due to its associated complications. Therefore, a lifetime screening of intestinal polyposis by video capsule endoscopy is recommended, along with a screening of most frequent sites of cancers. During any abdominal procedure, an intraoperative endoscopy should also be performed, as this allows an increased interval time between two laparotomies. Our next article is entitled, Influence of Esophageal pH Recording on Physical Activity in Children, by Laurent Michaud et al. 24-hour pH monitoring is the gold standard in the diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux disease in children. However, ambulatory pH monitoring may affect physical activity. The goal of this study was to assess how ambulatory pH monitoring affects physical activity in children. The authors studied 22 patients with a mean age of 6.9 years. 24-hour physical activity was measured using an accelerometer one week before or after pH monitoring, as well as during pH monitoring. Results showed that physical activity was significantly lower during the 24-hour period of pH monitoring than when the probe was not present. In conclusion, ambulatory 24-hour esophageal pH recording substantially decreases all physical activity, with high-level physical activity being most affected. These changes in activity during pH probe monitoring may or may not decrease the sensitivity of pH monitoring and lead to false negative results. 
Our next article is entitled, Long-Term Outcome of Children with Biliary Atresia Who Were Not Transplanted After the Kasai Operation, Over 20-Year Experience at One Children's Hospital, by Masato Shinkai et al. The author's goal was to evaluate the long-term outcome of patients who underwent the Kasai operation as first-line surgical intervention for the treatment of biliary atresia. They performed a retrospective chart review of 80 patients between 1970 and 1986 and found variable survival rates depending on the type of biliary atresia, the age at initial operation, and the surgical method. Half of adult survivors developed cirrhosis by the time they were 20 years old with 37% exhibiting cholangitis and 17% having suffered GI bleeding after age 20. One-fifth of adult patients underwent liver transplantation or died of liver failure in their third decade of life. Overall survival rates of patients with their native livers were 63% at 5 years, 54% at 10 years, and 44% at 20 years. The authors conclude that patients with long-term survival after Kasai operation warrant close, long-term post-operative care due to the risks of hepatic compromise. Our next article is entitled, Living-Related Donor Liver Transplantation for Children with Fulminant Hepatic Failure in Israel by Dror Shuval et al. The authors of this retrospective study from Israel aimed to report their experience with living-related donor liver transplantation in children with fulminant hepatic failure. The authors reviewed 13 children who were diagnosed with fulminant hepatic failure from 1996 to 2007 and subsequently had a living-related donor liver transplant. Of the 13 patients, four patients were found to have hepatitis A. The cause of fulminant failure was unknown in the remaining nine patients. Short-term complications, documented in 12 children, included mainly hepatic artery thrombosis, which warranted retransplantation in three cases. Three patients died within the first month after transplant of uncontrolled intraoperative bleeding, severe brain edema, and multi-organ failure. Long-term complications were less common and included mainly ascending cholangitis. Patient survival rate was 68% at one year and 57% at five years. None of the donors had long-term complications. The authors conclude that living-related donor liver transplantation can serve as a useful alternative to cadaveric donors for fulminant hepatic failure. Our final article is entitled, A Diagnosis Scoring for Clinical Identification of Children with Heterozygous Familial Hypercholesterolemia by Pascal Belnian et al. Familial hypercholesterolemia is a frequent monogenic condition characterized by progressive atherosclerosis requiring preventive therapy from childhood. This study elaborated on a clinical scoring system for the diagnosis of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia in children, as this may not be identified from common forms of hypercholesterolemia. The presence of a disease-causing LDLR mutation defines the diagnosis of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, or HFH. 100 unrelated children with type 2A hypercholesterolemia and complete genetic testing were selected for score elaboration. Three independent predictors of HFH were identified according to the LDLR genotype. LDL cholesterol before lipid-lowering diet, LDL cholesterol after lipid-lowering diet, and parental statin use. High precision and accuracy of the scoring system were translated into four probability classes, 
definite, probable, possible, and improbable HFH with a 12% false negative rate. The authors conclude that a score identifying HFH from common hypercholesterolemia provides a simple tool for appropriate clinical decision and care in high-risk children. This concludes the JPGN podcast for April 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access the full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Thank you.